This episode was recorded before the announcement of Ealing Trail Finders and Doncaster Knights being prevented access to the Premiership even if they were to win the Championship. A disgraceful decision in my opinion, but it means that some of the content herein is outdated. Either way, we have a good rant about things as per usual. So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. As always, you can find us on social media. So on Facebook, it's simply Folk on Falcons and you'll see our logo. And on Twitter, again, it's Folk on Falcons, but this time it's at Folk on Falcons. And again, you'll see the logo. So for those that have been tossing them up, you'll be well aware that we're about to approach our 50th episode. And up our sleeve, we've got... 50th episode with a special guest. A lot of you will have heard of him from playing in the past, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Going to release that probably later in the week or early next week. So that's a, it's a bit of a different one to usual, but in my great pleasure speaking to him at Kingston Park last Friday. Unfortunately, we wanted to be all jolly at the start of this episode, but once again, the match was overshadowed by a minute's silence to one of the all-time Falcons greats. And... Um, when I heard the news last week, it was devastating. You think, how bad can it get? You've got the captain retiring through injury, the death of Steve Black, and then the death of Inga Twigamal are all within less than a fortnight. It's really bad black times for the club. And um, once again, a very solemn minute silence before kickoff. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of lose the words eventually, don't you? I mean, absolutely terrible. Um, he was probably my favourite player, and I'm sure a lot of other Falcons fans are saying the same thing. I mean, when I first started to watch the Falcons, he was, you know, one of he was one of the big superstar names. He was always kind of one of the ones that got your attention because of the, you know, just the way he played. And uh, you know, you remember sort of opposition players just chucking the ball out to play rather than risk getting tackled by him. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not just a sad loss for the club, but for for everyone really, for for the sport, for for the world. I mean, it was such a you know, he's such a great guy. I mean, I know that obviously his faith was very important to him and that was a real pillar of his character and that kind of shone through in everything he did. But what, what a loss. It was absolutely terrible. And uh, you're right, it's been a really sort of, not not just sort of on the pitch, but off the off the pitch as well. It's been a pretty miserable couple of weeks. Certainly has. Um, and then before we got to the weekend, uh, the first thing that caught my eye during the week was we had um, a sort of a, a usual Will Welch or... Mark Wilson, as it was, captain. This week we had co-captains. Connor Collett was the co-captain who happened to be in the forwards. And then obviously you get one that complements within the backs, and that being Tom Penny. And they were both um, choices that I wouldn't necessarily criticise, but they caught me out a bit. I don't really see the point of having co-captains. Why not just have a captain and then either a pack leader or a back leader, as opposed to a formal co-captain? It's one of these strange things where one of them always has to take precedence anyway, because they can't both make the same decision all the time. So what are your views on that? Yeah, I uh, take the back when I saw that on the team. Like you say, I mean, I don't necessarily think as characters that they aren't captain material, especially, I suppose, one eye into the future. Um, you know, maybe we are looking at one or both of them as being permanent captains. But yeah, for the reasons you gave there, it's surprising, especially at the top top level, to have two co-captains, as you say. I mean, usually you'd have the one captain who makes decisions on the pitch, the one who goes and talks to the referee, and like you say, a pack leader or someone leading the backs, you know, depending who the captain is. It was an odd one. Um, it's one of those ones where I think you'll only know, well, if you, I think you'd only know if you're sitting there in the coach's meeting room or the changing room, really, wouldn't you? Otherwise, you sort of look from the outside. I think it's a bit odd, but again, like you say, it's, if you look at the individuals themselves, you know, maybe they are kind of captain material in the future. 
Yeah, I was thinking about who, who else could it possibly have been because if you look at Tom Penny, for all he's a, a very good player, he's a utility back this season, but in the past he was a fullback and uh, before that I think he played centre quite a bit, but um, he's been kept out of the team by Mike Brown this year, so he's not always started every game. And then you've got Connor Collett, who's been absolutely fantastic when he has played, but he's been largely kept out of the squad by the other back row options. So is it a nod to next season? Is it going to be that Collett's going to be a more central point in the team? I certainly hope so, the way he's been playing, because I'm a real fan of his. Um, but then I was thinking kind of, who else could you have? Yeah, potentially. I don't know if it's also maybe something to do with its coincidence with the fact that it was, I think it was Walder who was sort of the head coach on the day, wasn't it? As opposed, I mean, I'm sure Richards would have sort of prepared the team during the week, but it maybe because if they do do this sometimes you see it come in the cup games where Richards kind of steps to one side and lets some of the other coaches kind of take over the main sort of head coaching if I'm putting it that way and maybe maybe that was just Walder's taking it maybe Walder thought he wanted to try it out and maybe that's a spin on it but yeah like we say it's hard to kind of sitting there on you know on your seat as a fan it's kind of sometimes hard to tell what kind of goes on behind the scenes there but um I mean in terms of future players like that um I I would go for someone in the forwards. I think Collar, if they do think he is going to be starting more, perhaps is a good choice. But, you know, there's other players. Sean Robinson, for example, I think he put your name in that hat. Yeah, so I was was thinking, to be a captain, you need to be basically first name on the team sheet if you're fit. And given the way the Falcons is, that basically takes the whole of the front row out of the equation. And also, it's kind of, I think, unfortunately, gone are the days that you get a front row as captain because... The tendency is that they swap halfway through every game these days, so you can't really have one as captain. And then you look at the back row, that's so variable, but obviously you went for Collis. And then I was thinking, really, the only other options are Peterson or Robinson. And Robinson, I hope, will be a fixture in the future. Maybe that he's just in the change room isn't necessarily the same sort of character. You get very good players that aren't captain material. You get very good captains that aren't necessarily such good players. But And if you look at the halfbacks, probably a little, little bit too inexperienced, You've got um, centres who I wouldn't say are necessarily captain material. I think um, Orlando could be, but I'm not sure what the long-term plans with him are. And I don't even know if um, English is an issue from. I've never heard him interviewed. And then the back three, obviously, Penny was co-captain. And I think that Radwan's probably a bit inexperienced. So and Mike Brown, I guess you could have had him as captain. He's done it in the past at various places. But then the news this week, which we'll touch on later on about him departing, obviously, lining somebody else up. So you, you're kind of left with not many other possibilities. So if we go into the game itself, after that minute of silence, which um, I think uh, certainly, well, it's two minute silences we've had and it's two fantastic starts we've had, or good starts we've had. Within a few minutes, we're on the score sheet. Couldn't have really gone better for the first few phases of the game. Yeah, I mean, I thought started okay. Um, generally in the first half, I thought we were okay to good. It was it, it wasn't as good as Exeter. I know the circumstances of the game were, were different, you know, in terms of the weather, the sending off, and the quality of opposition. But we were solid. I thought um, defense looked really good again in the first half. But we you know we we were still making the first half mistakes or unforced errors, which we just weren't making against Exeter. Maybe the fact that you know they they didn't I don't know mentally raise their game enough because they weren't playing against Exeter and they, they weren't thinking, oh, you know, we're down 40 men, we kind of have to, you know, really do our bit here. But uh, defence was fine. It was sold enough. And I think when we went into the lead at half time, I mean, at least I was sort of fairly confident that we'd probably see it out if replicated that in the first half. Um, but I don't know, I think it's, it just got 
worse the second half. I think half time, you know, they just couldn't kick on from it, could they? I feel like there was wind that was a bit of a factor in the game. And I think it, when we had it, we we dominated. Once again, we dominated the game, but we didn't put enough points in the scoreboard. And when you go in at half time, you think, oh, that's been quite a good half. And actually, there's only seven points in it. So unfortunately, once again, we didn't make the pressure pay that we that we had in our favour. And then um, one thing I'd like to say about the starters, when you I've, I've watched the game back, it actually takes 45 minutes because of all the stoppages that you can whiz through. But um, when we scored our first try, the referee said it would have been a penalty try had they not scored it, i.e. try into the post, seven points. Um, you don't have to take the conversion anymore. But because we scored a try, we had to then take a conversion, which we missed. So can someone who's au fait with the rules or the laws, I should say, and the logic of a team commits a penalty try offence and a penalty try is not given, why? What's the point? Give us seven points. We don't want five and then have to kick it. Give us seven, then they shouldn't have committed a penalty. I don't, I don't see it being any different to when a, a team gets an advantage and then it messes it up or whatever. I, I just don't. I don't see how they could possibly. As soon as the referee makes the decision, this would be a penalty try. I don't see why you'd ever not blow the whistle for a penalty try. What could possibly be better than it? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just sort of one of these formal oddities in the rules where you have to, you know, you have to do a certain amount of. That's be a certain amount of offences before you can then go to the penalty try. And there was only a certain amount of offences, and it hadn't got to the the magic number, or whatever in the referee's head or what the referee goes off to then give the penalty try. But yeah, it, it is an odd one that one. Uh, I mean, I didn't know he said that. Obviously, sitting there in the ground, but it was only when I saw comments later that happened. You do sort of wonder, think, oh, that's just not really quite right. But I mean, in terms of again, the first half, I kind of felt that we just didn't have that much territory actually either. You know, I know we talked about you know it was fairly decent, but I felt that we were actually weren't really in their trade too much, and Bath we just sort of kind of gifted them a way into the first half. It was these sort of unforced errors. We gifted them the points. I mean, we would score and then straight away we would concede we would pull and we'll pull at the kickoffs. And that kind of gave them footholds into to get straight back. And I think it was those sort of unforced errors which kind of gave them a grip on that first half, which meant that they could, well, obviously have a better second half. And uh, we didn't correct those mistakes at all um, after the break. Yeah, and one thing I would say has been quite positive is not only the performance of Nordi Calametti and Hayden Wood, but also I spotted online some are calling them the hyphen halfbacks. And it's a good bit of alliteration. I, I like that. So I'll start calling them the, the hyphen halfbacks as well. And I feel like the hyphen halfbacks are actually doing incredibly well the time they're on the pitch. I thought Nordi Calametti was darting through. It gives, a, it gives an extra dimension to certainly other scrum halves that we've seen in recent years where He's not afraid to take on someone twice his size and snipe around the edges. He's not just a, a pass-it machine or a box-kick machine. He's got more term than that. I think Hayden Wood's turning into a very good player. The more the more he plays, the more comfortable and confident he looks. And He's not afraid himself to go through a gap and then look for the offload of the little pass. And He, he almost got through a couple of times um, on Saturday. But then I think the big turning point in the game was when Nordi Calametti went off and Schroeder went on. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the big turning point. And you got to wonder why Nordi Calamedi went off because unless he was injured but didn't seem it um, from Walder's kind of post-match comments he kind of takes almost sort of responsibility for the substitutions like the tactical substitutions which suggests he brought Schroeder on as a tactical substitution rather than any sort of injury and 
you know, he's he sort sure doesn't play to eyes, a bit rusty. He's a very ty- very different type of player to Lordy Calabetti. And I just don't understand why you would take off Lordy Calabetti, who's doing so well and put on a very different type of scrum half. He's possibly quite rusty. And, you know, in, in what is such a crucial game, and obviously we're, we're winning. Like, there's, there's no urge to kind of change it up in any way. Certainly in that element in the halfbacks, because that was working well. Well, why change a working well halfback partnership while we're in the lead? It's just, you know, it's just one of these sort of decisions where you're kind of really sort of scratching your head. Also, um, it's not been confirmed yet, but every every rumour seems to point to Schroeder going off to Bath next year. Seems an odd one to to bring on because psychologically, will he necessarily be where you want him to be in the game or is he going to try and prove stuff to his new teammates? Or who knows, might be uh, going a bit too far up one avenue here. But um, one other substitution which I thought um, actually wasn't as bad as I thought it may be was when, um, unfortunately, Orlando went off after bumping his head and compressing his neck. Lucock came on. I thought he he played fantastically, especially in the first half. Um throwing Nathan Hughes around like a rag doll and getting really stuck in. Very good performance from him. Yeah, he, he did put his really good hits in defence. I actually remember, I think when you say Nathan Hughes, and maybe, maybe we're thinking of the same particular tackle or two where he really did kind of put him down sort of on the spot. Um, and he, that's, you know, you, that's when we're sort of winning and you think, oh yeah, you know, this is going pretty well, you know. Uh, we're really kind of, hold, you know, we're kind of holding, holding them off here. We're going to do this. But um, yeah, I, but again, I just felt an attack Again, with the backs, there just wasn't much then. When when we were trying to, when we were behind or trying to build on me towards the end of the game, it just didn't look, again, like it has been all season, just didn't look like it was working. Um, again, I don't know if that's down to the change of personnel or, or even just the, the, the tactics or whatever we do, but we just didn't look that incisive at all in attack again. Yeah, and um, when we talk about Nathan Hughes and Lucock, there's obviously... Bit of a talking point there when there was the high tackle that um, ended up being a yellow card, not a red. It's one of those ones where how different to Chicks last week was it? I see them both being given either way every week. Just as it seems to depend on who the ref and the TMO are. And last week it was a red card. And I don't think I've got too many arguments really. This week it was a yellow. Could I feel a bit aggrieved? Yeah, but I think it was also one of the ones where you see it yellow quite often. So I think the, um, the officials probably got it about right, but it's still um, a bit of a Pain in the neck when it goes against you. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, unlike Karen Chicks, one which I saw over and over again on highlights when I got home, uh, I haven't actually seen Hughes's one on highlights. I just saw it on the big screen when I was there and obviously in real time. Uh, my impression is that you can kind of you can see why Richards has agreed because they actually took quite a bit of time to look over this one. And they came to, it's probably, you know, a bit like last week, it's a bit 50-50 decision whether it's a yellow or red. But again, this was kind of my point, probably Richard's point last week in terms of the, the consistency in that, you know, one week you can say that's a red card, one week you say it's a yellow card for two not massively dissimilar challenges. So it's, it's I think that, that's the frustration, isn't it? It's the inconsistency, and, and when you know, and it's just when when it's against us, and when they've ta- they've actually taken the time in this last last weekend to actually look at that decision, and then come to the yellow card. Should they have taken longer time over chicks? Would it make a difference? I don't know, but I think it's all about that sort of consistency, which we just didn't see. I think also um, what is beginning to annoy me a bit about these decisions is it seems to be very much camera camera angle dependent upon what the outcome is. This week, because of the angle of the camera, it. I think exaggerates um, the amount of dipping that Lukok did, whereas the angle the other week didn't show the amount of dipping that Hodge did when 
it was quite evident from other angles a bit further out that he did go down quite significantly. And they tend to go for the camera angle that gives the clearest shot of the contact, not necessarily the camera angle that gives the clearest shot of the moment in the game. And I think when you look at the the two of them, they quite often give slightly different things, especially in slow motion. When you look at the contact close up, it always looks horrendous because it's slow motion and two behemoths running into each other. But when you're further out in slow motion, you actually see the dipping and the reaction times coming into it. But there we go. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I thought that for Hughes, the referee did make the comment saying, oh, well, Newcott was dipping, he was going down, which was which was the mitigation as to why it was a yellow. You know, fair enough, Cliff, looking at yeah. it just at, in, in isolation, fine, fair enough, I get that. But then, again, we go back to consistency. Hodge was clearly dipping. Yes, it was a bad tackle, of course it was, but Hodge was clearly dipping. Therefore, why wasn't that a mitigation? And then what levels of mitigation do you have? Is it how far they dip, perhaps? Or, as you say, is it down to the camera angles? And I think that's the frustration, especially when you clearly hear the referee give reasons, oh, well, yes, because he was going down mitigation. That's straight away mitigation. Well, why wasn't that the case for Chicks? And that's, again, where we go back to the idea of consistency. Exactly that. And then... Also, what seemed to come in the second half, I'm gonna. I thought about this play on words last season and thought not to use it because it doesn't really make any sense, really. But you've got Schroeder's cat being in a box, and it sounds almost the same as Schroeder box kicking catching. I can't quite work out where the pun or whatever is there. Something to do with Schroeder's box or Schroeder's cat box. I don't know. Box kick catch, but basically. Schrodinger's box kicks, no, Schroeder's box kicks, had a lot to be an- answered for at the weekend. Um, he did one when he first came on that went straight up and down, and I think Peterson ended up on the wrong side and gave away a penalty. And then in the last 10 minutes, there was another one that went absolutely nowhere near where he intended it to. And ultimately, it ended up with a 60-yard hoof down the pitch and then getting the touchline, uh, getting Hayden Wood over the touchline in the corner. Well, I mean, you mentioned before, at the moment, the sort of turn the tide of the game was the change at scrum half. And you've just mentioned there the moment I think actually lost us the game, which was the the terrible and unnecessary box kick, which just put Haynwood in all sorts of trouble. I mean, it was awful for him to deal with. And as I say, he just got bundled out. You can't, you can't really blame him for that. But, you know, obviously, you should never have been in that position. And that's what loses it for us. Because obviously, you know, they then get they get the scrum, they then get the penalty. And then it's just out, out wide again. You know, we're starting to get this issue of, and it happened twice, Joe Cox was out, out, got in there twice, out wide. And it was coming back again, that this this deficiency in defence out wide, um, which we didn't see against Exeter. I think maybe that's because of the conditions. And I think Exeter do generally tend to play a bit more narrow. I think that suited us. But Bath at times just just tore us to ribbons out, out wide. Um, once they got a couple of phases together, once they got it out there, we looked so vulnerable. And that's how we lost it at the end. We just caught short in defence and it was just a walk-in in the corner. Well, one thing I'd say about that last try was they got the line out in the corner. They did a few cut, uh, pick and goes. And what we do, which a lot of teams don't, is quite often we end up defending pick and goes with our backs. Not the wingers as much, but you'll see uh, maybe the centres getting in as first guard. And they defend the pick and go quite ably a lot of the time. But what it does mean is you then don't have the backs out to fan across the pitch. And then, as you say, it was a a walk-in. It must have been a five or six on two or three um, for the last try. But one thing in the build-up to that, um, 
it's quite clear on the TV replays. To pick up, that's the referee should blow up there, and he didn't. And it was right in front of him, and it, he was doing it to try and get us offside. But a, a scrum half isn't allowed to dummy a pick up and a pass to a fly half. And in the laws, there's no difference between Nathan Hughes being six foot, however much person with a stupid haircut, versus a scrum half. That it's the same rule. And it should be applied to whoever ends up in that position. And he quite clearly dummies the pickup. And referee should have blown, but he didn't. And there we go. I mean, there were a couple of questions maybe about refereeing decisions again. But unlike last week, um, without trying to sound too much, I broke record, we can't. I don't think we can blame the referee too much this week. It, it, it was our own undoing most of the time. I mean, you know, it's not the referee doing stupid box kicks with 10 minutes left, for example. Um, yeah, I, I do think we just have ourselves to blame. And it was, yeah, I, you know, it was so deflating uh, full-time. So, so, you can just sense it everywhere because, yeah, and there's a relegation, but the magnitude of the game, because he kind of felt that, if we'd won that, I don't think we would have finished bottom. I think the points gap with Bath would probably be too much, even if they did pick up more points than us towards the end of the season. Um, but losing that is, you know, is really, really depressing stuff and really, really, really worrying, especially with the good God tough fixtures coming up. Yeah, I'm not going to use the uh, refereeing as an excuse. Well, I think it was actually quite all right at the weekend. Um, one thing I would say, though, is that very often we are exposed when we have given away a penalty advantage and the opponents do a bit of a Hail Mary and fling it around a bit and get run a few mega switches in the centre or a, a big long miss pass and a good line. And we get exposed out wide, but they don't try doing that when they haven't got the advantage because obviously there's the risk attached to it. What I'd say is when we're not on our own try line, we should have someone fly... When we've given away a penalty advantage, we should have someone flying up deliberately offside to kill the game and make that original penalty get given because ultimately what happens? They either score a try or the ref brings them back for that original penalty. So let's take the decision out of anyone's hands. You never get Sinbin for being offside, especially if it's not within the what they call the red zone. And quite often it's the 22 halfway area where they're sort of flinging it around by the opposition happens. We should just be a bit cuter and make someone deliberately give away a penalty in centre field for being offside, kill the attack dead, and then go back to what would have ultimately happened anyway, which is the, the penalty or the original penalty offence. Um, just seems like one of these things where I think Saracens would probably do it. Maybe we need to do it as well. Well, we've mentioned this before, haven't we, in terms of cuteness, really, isn't it? And sort of streetwiseness, if you can call it that. Um, in the... <laughs> You know, little things, as you say, teams like Saracens do a lot better than us. Too honest. Is it to do with the, the players or is it that the coaches haven't kind of got around to that way of thinking? But you're right. I, I do genuinely think that is a, even though it's, you know, you don't like, you don't like to sort of ideally see your teams do these sort of tactics, but, you know, it's what wins game. You're right. I think it is a deficiency we have and maybe it's down to the coaches. Maybe they need to say, we should try A, B, and C. Look, look at what Saracens are doing, or whatever, because it, it does catch us out. Uh, you, you do notice that sometimes. I find that we actually, apart from out wide, but generally, where we are very good defending, I think the closer to our line, I think the better we are at defending. Um, and as you say, even even the backs are actually pretty good at defending within our own five meter line. It's when sometimes it's you know out more in open play 
you get some teams can do some really good moves, you know, do the switches, do the long passes or whatever. And as you say, that can sometimes leave us really, really exposed. And then teams make a lot of ground and you get really worried. And then actually we are fairly decent uh, holding them out once they get close to our line. But there is, there's, there does seem to be that point between sort of the halfway line or more open in the pitch to when we get closer to our line where sometimes our defence, not just out wide, but sometimes in midfield can be a bit flaky. And I think maybe that's an element of it. Yeah, and one other thing that we can talk about, talk about the coaching of potentially being a bit cute. Some of the basics aren't there either. It was certainly in the second half when one of the hyphen halfbacks had gone off. But I think for the whole game, there's an awful lot of times when when we get slow ball especially, but in general, our backline is standing still when they're getting the ball. And this is the sort of stuff you're taught from your very first rugby session as a child. You line up diagonally and you start running before you get the ball. And I remember playing on the wing doing training sessions where we were doing this. And I was effectively doing 50-yard sprints every single time because the depth has been forced to put on it by the PE teacher. It's just basics. And the amount of times that we are standing pretty much flat or we're all getting the ball standing still. And then you're instantly on the back foot. And it's so easy to defend against when you've got a player that's not running towards you when they're catching you. If they're just standing there waiting to be tackled, or they've got a standing start. And that takes them, but not everyone can accelerate in half a metre like Radwan. A lot of players take five or 10 yards to get their speed up. And it's just simple things about breaking the gain line. And we're not doing it. And it's why not? Well, that's the thing, isn't it, about lack of incision? isn't it? And breaking the game line and, you know, a bit of dynamism there with ball in hand and attack. And it is slow and it is turgid and we don't make much ground, but you don't see that with other teams. And that's the difference, isn't it? You know, we, we rely too much for to score up. Yeah, but this, this is it. This is why we don't score our points. We rely on our forwards to score the points most of the time. I have that or like a Radawad special. You know, forwards do what they do best. They try their hardest. It often works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, they do what they can. That's fine. But, you know, it's our backs don't add anything to it. It's so slow. It's so, well, yeah, I'll just say we're slow, turgid. It just, it's so predictable as well. We just don't seem to break the game line. We don't make the breaks. Then we break the game line, just the breaks that you see other teams do. And that obviously could build a platform for the forwards as well to have a bit more of a go and we're just not doing that so that that is that is the main problem isn't it yeah and um, they can't really use getting tired as the answers because when you watch the game back if you want to do it it only takes 45 minutes if you go on the premiership rugby website you can play it on like the online premiership rugby's version of youtube and one of the things there is if you press the arrow keys during it it skips forward about five or ten seconds or something which is long enough that when they have a scrum or as soon as someone knocks it on you can press it about 15,000 times and you eventually get to when they start playing again. And in the whole of the match, doing this by pressing the arrow keys, I condensed it down to 45 minutes, just missing out all of the drying the ball off when there's a line out or all the kickers taking 15 minutes to line up one from in front of the post. So the this front rows going down, or we did it ourselves in the last few minutes of the game, our front row went down a number of times and you see that all the time trying to run the clock down, but then it catches you out at the end when, You've, you've run out of time to score a try back yourself. But something needs to be done about this. We need to go to a basketball-style stop clock or the referees need to start giving free kicks left, right and centre for de- delaying the game and then start advancing them to penalties because people pay good money to go and watch 80 minutes of rugby. They don't go and pay good money to watch 45 minutes of rugby, which is what's happening. And the price of tickets, if you're paying 30, 40 quid a ticket, very quickly becomes, instead of a paper a second, it becomes pound a minute. And you're, you're thinking, well... This isn't good value. And 
um, as we touched on in our special episode, that fans in the ground is one of the things that the, the club needs and we need to get the fans in. And the way to get the fans in isn't by spending five minutes resetting numerous scrums. It's not by everyone walking over to a line out. It's by getting the ball in play and playing some good rugby. I'll go back to that first game of the season, the home of the Harlequins, where, you know, we lost, but we're really unlucky to lose. But it was a really good game. It was a really fast-paced game. And that's the sort, you know, you don't mind that so much. You know, when you go away, yes, you know, a bit disappointed defeat, could have won it, whatever. But, you know, you don't mind sort of performances like that or games like that. But we do see it. I don't know if, I don't know if it's because kind of we bring teams down to our level. That's just how the way we play. It's not fast paced. There's a lot of stoppages. You know, they have to, and it just, they have to try to generate atmosphere and all this stupid music and stuff, which I won't get into. But you also kind of see like, it's not just the fact that it's slow. You sort of see the players as well. You know, I don't know if it's just sort of, a, they're just in a bit of a rut and just a sort of morale thing at the moment. But, you know, they're not running up to things. They've got head on, you know, hands on hips and looking, you know, heads down sort of thing. And they're sort of strolling. You know, maybe it's a bit of an unfair criticism, but it's kind of like the impression. And it, all that sort of thing slows the game down. It kind of goes into the fact of, you know, the point you're making about, well, where's the excitement and where's the actual rugby? Um, and at the end of the day, you know, if it's not exciting, you know, you're, you're not going to get bums on seats. I mean, yes, I mean, wins get wins get bums on seats. But even if you don't win, people want to be entertained. And if they're not entertained, then, and you're losing, you've got a problem. So you talk about hands on hips and people not enjoying themselves, perhaps in the crowd. I think one other thing that this season, which has become quite evident, is that Mike Brown hasn't quite clicked. He's certainly shown glimpses and periods within games of why he has all those England caps and why he's got such a fantastic reputation in history. But um, I have to say, when the news broke this weekend, it's not officially been released yet, but um, it's one of these things where there's no smoke without fire. Um, it was the rugby paper that originally broke the story of him coming to the Falcons, and it seems to be the rugby paper that's breaking the story about him leaving. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a surprise, really, is it? Um, I, you always see it for rose-tinted spectacles because you you're desperate for it to work out, and but it just hasn't worked out at all, has it? And unfortunately, that that's the harsh truth of it. Um, like you say, there has been glimpses and, you know, there are moments, like you say, where you think, oh, you know, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. But then you sort of think, well, Penny could have done that. <laughs> and you think, well, why is Penny out the team really for, for, for Mike Brown with some of the subpar performances? I mean, a couple of them in particular have been really, really poor performances. I remember in particular that London Irish away game. But it's, it, I wonder, I wonder if it's a few factors. I wonder if it's, just no matter how old you are or how experienced you are, maybe it is difficult coming to a completely different environment, to a completely different club, completely different culture. You know, you're going from a, a league-winning team with Quinns and for many years have been a pretty decent side. You know, you're down by, you see a local club or whatever, he's based in Surrey, isn't he? And then, you know, that, that's that been your club. And then you come up to, to Newcastle and it's a very different, I'm not even talking about the geography. You know, it's, it's such a different environment. You go into a team which especially at the moment, it's probably, unfortunately, the worst team in the league. And if you're a player who, you know, play, who's been playing for the highest level for generally pretty good teams for almost the entirety of his career, you know, how difficult is it, is it for him to adjust that? Maybe, if, maybe the pressure just on him to kind of somehow drag everyone else up with him, it gets too much, you just can't do it. I don't know. So there's so many factors because it's not like he's sort of going sideways in his career. He's Coming to us, especially the way we're playing, has unfortunately been, you know, it wasn't the intention, but the reality has been a big step down for him. And no matter how experienced you are, 
is that just too much for him? And maybe his level's been brought down to the rest of the team. And um, yeah, it's just, who knows with it, but it's, it's just for whatever reason, just really hasn't worked out, has it? Yeah, last year he won the Premiership, albeit he unfortunately didn't play in the final because of his misdemeanour in the semis or the last league game or whatever it was. Um, but I feel like he's someone who doesn't look like he wants to be on the pitch at times. I think that, as you say, the geography is very different. Far from Harlequins and nice South uh, West London, Kingston Park or training when you've got the conditions we have. I think this year has been particularly bad in terms of conditions, particularly on match days, the way that the, the winds affected things. And um, there's been a few games with horizontal sleet and snow. And he he's the... He's no longer the person that's the longest serving member in the club. He's he's the newbie in the changing room and he's a 30-odd-year-old man. It's it's not like he's the, the young person coming up through the academy. And I think it's obviously going to take time to bed in. Cliques will exist within, it, within any club. He's got to try and find his space in it. And then it's been quite a disrupted season. And I, I just feel like it's such a shame because everyone was so excited for it and it's just not worked out. And as a player, I think if you look at his whole career, he's been a fantastic player for the vast majority of it. And it's just a shame that his twilight year or years are going to be remembered by us for a season where it's been a bit, I don't know what the word is, it's not been not been good, it's not been bad, it's just been distinctly average and it's not what we hope for. Yeah, I would say it's a bit of a damn squib if I use that phrase. Um, it's just, yeah, I just, we did have such hype, but we were so excited. You know, when it was announced, we were so excited to see him at the start of the season. I don't even think really it's a weight of expectation because obviously we thought he'd be pretty good. But I think in a club like Newcastle, there isn't so much attention on individual particular players. Even Radwan, I think, you know, won't get the same attention to say if he was playing, you know, like a Leicester or Harlequins or Saracens or something. Um, So, you know, I think there was sort of breathing space there. Maybe for one or several of the reasons we've discussed, or maybe it's just been a year too far for him. You know, he's at an age where maybe, you know, no matter how fit you are, maybe, you know, he's picked up the old injury this season. Maybe it's just, that's been it. It's just been too much for him. But for, as we say, one of those reasons or any of those reasons combined or whatever order you want them in, it just hasn't worked out. I think if he was playing for Harlequins again this year, he would be just as good a player as he was last season. I think a big difference is the players he's got around him. Um, at Harlequins, he had Marcus Smith, he had Don Brandt, he had Tyrone Green, he had what's the Ustays or whatever that centre's called. He, he had all these players where he's not carrying them and they create things and he can run off them. Whereas I feel at the Falcons, he's been he's expected to be the playmaker and expected to make the breaks and expected to do the things which at Harlequins he did. But he didn't do them at Harlequins off and on back a lot of the time. He was relying on the very good players around him and he complimented them. He didn't he didn't make it. And I think that just one of those things where he was looking better in a better team, but who doesn't look better in a better team? No, I, I agree. I think that is, is the main point. Uh, it, I think it is the fact that he was part, he was a very good player amongst other very good players in a very good team that played very well together. But it's exactly that for us. You know, the players around him aren't as good. You know, they simply aren't as good. And even your Radwans don't have had the experience like a lot of those Harlequins players have and are probably much more raw in a way. And, you know, you, you sort of see moments where, like, I remember in particular the Worcester game where, I can't remember who it was, gave him a terrible pass. And, you know, he's just shoveled awful passes through. And he's just got a, like, last-minute 
booted away somewhere, you know, and it's it's sort of moments like that, which, you know, no matter how good a player you are, you know, that is going to bring you down because, you know, you got you have to rely on the players. It's a team sport. You have to rely on the players around, especially, you know, it can be pretty lonely at fullback. Um, and at Harlequins, it was obviously going to be much more comfortable than him. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think you're probably right. That is the main point. It's just, he's playing an inferior team and it just, I think that's probably why it just hasn't worked. Anyway, ever the optimists as we are, there is a silver lining here in that um, with the unfortunate news of um, Wilson's retirement and then Brown leaving, if you were to write down our biggest earners on paper, I think those two would be right up there. And when it comes to budget being freed up and um, what I've been concerned about, particularly when they've had the England call-ups, is will we be able to keep a hold of our players? And it comes down to two things. One is opportunities to progress and the other side is money and I think that our England contingent uh, Blamai may be a bit differently because McGuigan's starting but they've certainly all got the opportunities in the squad but in terms of money we can either offer them more money um, to try and make them stay even though we're we're not pushing a salary cap like some clubs maybe we can um, certainly hopefully put a hand in the back pocket now we've knocked a bit of salary bill off and the second thing is that if we choose to get a, another big name signing in the centres or something like that, then that might be the sort of catalyst we need to make our backline really start firing because we have got the finishers. It's just the, the inside them that often ends up being the problem. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of... I, I You know, season hasn't finished yet, obviously, but we can when the summer does come around, I suppose we can kind of get that transfer season optimism, can't we? And get, you know, the excitement about who we can sign and some of the new players coming in. And to be fair, I mean, I know we obviously criticise performances, but I have to say that a lot of the signings they do make are actually fairly decent, not necessarily for the whole time, but a lot of their signings for periods do actually work quite well. So... I think when we, you're right in terms of this has released probably a lot of money for the club to spend on perhaps several players. And it's really important more than ever with next season that we have to kind of get, we really, really have to get recruitment right. I mean, it's obvious to fans. It must, you would hope it's obvious to coaches. You would hope it's obvious to the decision makers at the club where we need strengthening. And hopefully with a bit more funds that have been released in departing players, we can reinforce those desperately needed areas. Certainly. Um, if we move on from the Falcons, obviously there was a bit more of we played this weekend with the Six Nations. Um, the England match, we got there just about. It wasn't pretty a lot of the time, but we got the win. And I guess what we're we chasing now, we're chasing a non-Grand Slam Six Nations. It's still there. We lost to Scotland, who are losing to everybody else at the minute. So, well, they lost this weekend. So... If we beat the teams ahead of us, it's ours to win the tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's in our hands, which you wouldn't have thought after that Scotland debacle. Um, I mean, going to the match, I mean, it was a win. Yeah, okay, great. You know, win's a win. Beat the Welsh, fantastic. But again, as the performances have been recently under Andy Jones, barring the odd World Cup game, it was just so underwhelming and so unsatisfying. Again, it's, it's like, you know, I may as well get the, old, the same phrase of the Falcons. You know, it was so turgid, wasn't it? And they don't really seem to have like an identity, really, to England. Um, and we just, I don't think we even look that good with ball in hand. We just don't, we just don't really, you don't get the confidence we're going to score many tries. As shown over the weekend, you know, Wales scored three tries to one against us at Twickenham. You know, I know we won, but something's not right there. 
And despite, even though we did win, you know, again, like England, we made it very hard for ourselves. And Wales could have easily have won that at the end. Um, I mean, they did everything that we made. They did everything they could to get into it. They did their part and we really helped them along with it. Um, and kind of sort of fortunate towards it. I think on the balance of it, we did deserve to win. But, you know, we could, bizarrely, we could have a situation, as you say, where it's in our hands. If we beat Ireland, I mean, we beat France, very tall orders, but we, we could. If we do beat them, we've won the Six Nations. You've got Eddie Jones sitting there saying, oh, yeah, I know, well, you know, didn't beat Scotland, no Grand Slam, you know, never mind. But, you know, that's what, the second, the second Six Nations in three years? And you sort of think, really? But, yeah, I suppose. But, no, I, I think there are problems. And a win's a win, but they're, they're going to have to up it. I think quite a bit for Ireland and France. They have to, otherwise, you know, it's, I think we're looking forward to a couple of pretty disappointing days there. Yeah, you say you're not quite sure what Eddie Jones' style is. And I'd say his style is making everybody hate English rugby, but just about getting there most of the time. So we just about got there in the World Cup and then we had quite a poor final. In the Six Nations, a couple of years ago, we ended up losing against Scotland and won it in autumn and no one really cared about it anymore. This year, we've had a terrible performance against Scotland again and then now we're winning just about somehow, but we're winning. And that seems to be what Eddie Jones does. He, he manages to annoy everybody whilst winning. Or often winning, but not all the time winning. And it's one of these ones where, do I look forward to an England game now? Not particularly. I'll watch it if I've got nothing else on. And not if I've got nothing else on. I'll try and watch it. But if I miss 20 minutes or half an hour at the start of it, I don't actually mind that much. And that's a really sad thing to say. But I don't look forward to watching this as I have in the past when we used to be a good team who played exciting rugby. Well, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I'm finding myself thinking that quite a bit recently. You know, when's the last time we actually enjoyed watching England? Um, yeah, there was the World Cup quarterfinal semi-final, special semi-final. Obviously, that was brilliant. Put that to one side. The occasional autumn international, which, you know, just glorify friendlies. But, you know, again, put one of the couple of those to one side. What have you got? Apart from the, the one, apart from the Grand Slam, which you know they played really well in that season, won the Grand Slam, deservedly great. You know, thought this was start so brilliant. But then the other six stations after that, even in the, the occasional ones they have won, you, you come away thinking, well, you know, yeah, we won, but as you say, it's just about enough. It's very rare nowadays, and it is sad, and it's it's worrying, and it's depressing that you don't come, you, that you you don't look forward to watching England because you know now what you're going to get. It's either going to be dreadful performance, a la Scotland. Or or scrape by as we did with Wales, um, you know, no way in a million years. Uh, I mean, you can go back to this episode if we do, and uh, you know, happily eat my various hats or whatever. But no way are we going to blow away Ireland or France with wonderful, scintillating, you know, dynamic play, are we? Uh, it's just not going to happen. So you know what's going to happen. It's either going to be we're going to be completely outscored and just don't look like we're going to score ourselves, or we're going to be out of force, both sort of well, mentally outforced, we put it that way, or we're just going to scrape by and somehow we win another Six Nations. You just mentioned France and Sinclair in rugby in the same sentence. And I think something's got to be said that I'd, I'd give a lot to be able to cheer about an English try as I watched some of those French ones against Scotland at the weekend. They're, they're just playing with such freedom that you dream of from any rugby team, whether it's the Falcons or the one down your local park or wherever. It's just... That is what the game's about, the way France play it. And you've got Ireland who are playing very well as well at the minute, touching them in a minute. But France are playing rugby in the way it should be played and how everybody dreams of playing and scoring tries when they're a child. And they do make it beautiful to watch. And I think that they're probably the only team in the world, apart from maybe the odd Japanese try against Scotland in the last World Cup, where you think... This is what the game's all about. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked about it a few times, haven't we? How 
you know, the game has kind of become so formulaic and so slow paced. You just have sort of big lads running into other big lads and, you know, you lack the fluency, you lack the excitement, you lack the, the pace and the urgency and the French just kind of torn that up. They've obviously, they've looked at the players they have. I mean, credit to them. I mean, they look at the players they have. The, the, the coaches obviously are playing to the qualities that those players have. You know, it's not like saying what England have done more, you know, maybe some other coaches where they think, okay, I want us to play in this style. You know, who cares about what each individual can kind of bring to the table? Um, France haven't done that. Uh, France really kind of just let the individuals sort of do their thing. I mean, it helps that if that's the system they want to go to and it's all, everything's going and working towards that way, then it, and it works, then it's brilliant. You'd think France got to be the best team in Europe at the moment. But the crunch, I suppose, for them is when it comes to their own World Cup. You know, I still remember over the summer they had that same French team. Uh, they had their tour in Australia where they to win the test, they literally just had to win the line out and kick it out and that into touch it was 80 minutes but they did the line out tried some ridiculous move lost it and then Australia eventually went down in about the 87th minute and got the winner so you know there are still elements it's cliche but there are still elements of that French game but if they manage to have the flair and the consistency which sometimes they've been lacking then we're probably looking at the best team for the next few years I think that sums it all up though I think in a World Cup France will just get the ball and kick it off the pitch but like you were saying the French flair, the glorified, well, you use the phrase yourself, glorified friendlies for these uh, internationals, and that's all they are, really. They used to call them friendlies, and it was test matches. Now it's autumn internationals or some other name of a series. But I'm pretty sure that had France had something riding on that game, other than just wanting to play rugby for the joy of it, they would have just kicked out of play. And I, I almost admire them in a way for being so flippant with the victory that they're willing to risk it to put a smile on people's faces. But um, one thing that didn't put a smile on my face was the absolute farce that the Italy-Ireland game descended into. What started off a, a reasonably good contest for the first 15, 20 minutes, very soon went downhill into an absolute joke, given what happened. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, obviously, attention on that particular law. It's interesting if it'll be changed, actually, because it was so high profile. It's all these funny laws where, you know, you can go for years and years and years and never actually see it happen, certainly at that level. And then when it does, everyone sort of questions, well, why, why the hell is that law there? You think it's got to be changed because it, it just... Ha- I know, obviously, you have two very unevenly matched teams to begin with, but it just descends... Exactly that. It descends into a farce with that rule. Um, and I, I do wonder if, if, if it will be expedited up the list to be reviewed perhaps next season. I remember once I was playing a, a game at university and um, we went to uncontested scrums and... I remember losing it with the referee because he didn't know the laws. And I was I was the forwards captain in that game. I was playing flanker and I was trying to explain to him that they got uncontested scrums and therefore they needed to take some off the pitch. And he just didn't understand it. And I knew that because I'm a bit of a nerd and I like to read the rule book. So it's one of these ones where it's hidden down the bottom of a page about uncontested scrums. None of the right man's going to read it unless they actually have to. And I, I went back to it because I was amazed that it came, came in its various guises because... I think it's quite reasonable that they've um, they've got a man sent off and it goes uncontested. But to then have to sacrifice someone and bring a front rower on seems a step too far. I can see why you could make them bring a front rower on but have uncontested scrums because there's a distinction at the highest levels of the game between a hooker and a prop, whereas lower down, sometimes you just have people who are, oh yeah, grunt, grunt, I can play front row, grunt, grunt. 
Whereas at the highest level, you have designated hookers and props. But to have to go down to 13 and bring a front row on seems a bit of a double whammy. If you go down to 13, at least let them bring a scrum half or a back row or whoever they want on the pitch. It seems just not quite right. They've got to bring a a prop on to play in the middle of an uncontested scrum. It makes no sense whatsoever. Just seems to be sort of a hangover from a rule. It's obviously a rule rule that they've adapted at some point over time. Uh, but then there's still the elements of another rule, which they kind of just, they're sort of just tacked onto it, haven't they? And not much thought's been given to it. And it's never been brought to anyone's attention, especially at the highest level, because how often do you see it? Uh, but now that it has, I mean, I think, we, as I said before, I think we, we might see a change in that sooner rather than later, because otherwise it just, yeah, descends into the farce that we saw over the weekend. Yeah, and I guess... The, the thing that made this one so stark was that there was the head injury in the first... No, it wasn't. It wasn't a head injury. It was a shoulder injury in the first few minutes to the number one hooker. So he went off and the red card happened quite early in the game. Whereas this sort of thing, if you think about when the first hooker normally gets substituted, it's in the 50th, 60th minute. And then if it was another 15, 20 minutes before the red card, you'd only end up with this situation for the last 10 or 15 minutes of the game. But um, also at the end of the game, when um, our friend Christoph Ridley gave a sin or told the referee to sin bin him for hitting the ball and touch. I think that was a bit of a harsh decision myself, but it was given. You ended up with Italy trying to defend with 12 men. And as a professional, when your career is on the line at every single tackle you make, what are the Italians actually playing for there? Credit to them for not just letting the uh, Irish run through them. But I'd been very tempted if I was the Italian captain when we got down to 12 men just to say, excuse me, sir, can you blow the full-time whistle, please? Because this isn't benefiting anybody. They'd have probably got fined a huge amount and maybe threatened with all sorts of horrible things by world rugby. But you've got to think, what is the point? There were 30-odd points down. They're down 12 men. What, the, what, what is possibly going to be achieved by those last five minutes being played? So before we go around the scores, one other match we're going to draw upon this weekend is quite an exciting one in the championship. If you look down or maybe turn another page in the sports page of the newspaper to what you usually do, you'll see the championship table. It's quite nicely poised now, isn't it? Yeah, well, you had one game in particular, which I don't know if, it, if, if it's early days yet, but potentially a league decider or something goes a hell of a long way to decide the league. And it was Ealing versus Doncaster. So Doncaster, top of the league, Ealing were third. And actually it was the full-time score was Ealing 17, Doncaster 25. So Doncaster are now seven points ahead of Ealing. Um, Ealing and I believe uh, Cornish Pirates who are in second place do still have two games in hand over Doncaster. I think they're both on the same amount of points as well as Doncaster. So both of both Ealing and Cornish Pirates are seven points behind Doncaster. So it is very much going to go down to the wire. I mean, it's not entirely, obviously, all in Doncaster's hands because of those games in hand, but... You know, we could be looking at a very unexpectedly close championship table and a potentially surprising championship winner. So if you are getting perhaps a little bit disillusioned with the Premiership at the moment, or even Six Nations, you know, keep an eye out the championship because I think that's probably the most exciting league at the moment. Well, yes. So there are 20 games in total to be played. And Doncaster have played 18 and they're on 67. Cornish Pirates are on 63, having played 16, and also having played 16 at Ealing. So on the face of it, you could say that Cornish Pirates are probably top of the league because they've got that game in hand, or two games in hand. You could also say Ealing are probably going to win both the games in hand, so they're going to end up a point ahead of Doncaster. 
But the key is that if we look at the fixtures left to go, on the 5th of March, Ealing played under Scottish, so you'd assume five points to Ealing there. So that'll be Ealing having played 17 games and being on 65 points. Um, there's no other game of note that weekend. The following weekend, Ealing play Amptill, which is a tricky place to go. You'd probably suspect another five points to Ealing there. That weekend, Doncaster play Cornish Pirates. And if Doncaster win that, I'd say it is probably quite likely that they win the league because Cornish Pirates, or oh, Cornish Pirates' last game of the campaign is away at Ealing. So it's going to be, a, I think it's up there for all three of them to win it. And I think Cornish Pirates are the ones that are in the driving seat here because they're in charge of their own destiny, whereas Doncaster are kind of relying on Ealing to lose to Cornish Pirates and whatnot. But it's dead simple for Cornish Pirates. If they win their remaining games, then they win the league. They're not allowed to get promoted. Never at the RFE is going to look incredibly stupid because they were, going to, they were billing it as a 14-team premiership next season as opposed to a 13-team premiership. And what are they going to do when they... If Cornish Pirates end up winning the league, then when you do the maths, it probably ends up that Doncaster comes second. And for the entirety of the last two years, basically everyone's just been saying, oh, yeah, Ealing going to get promoted into premiership. Now when it comes to it, <laughs> it looks like Cornish Pirates could quite possibly win the championship. And if they don't, Doncaster might, or if they do, Doncaster might be the one that comes second. Then how are they going to shoot Horn Ealing into the championship next season, assuming they actually qualify with the ground requirements, etc.? Well, yeah, um, I guess, apologies everyone, concussion probably hasn't worn off. Um, but yeah, no, it's right. Um, Ealing are three points behind, sorry. Uh, it's on 60 points, as you're right, Cornish Pirates, 63 points. But yeah, obviously, it's all we build up for sort of, you know, Ealing is the shoe-ins and it just goes to show with sport, doesn't it? You know, and they have, you know, if we hadn't had a premiership relegated team for the goodness knows how many years now, Ealing would have won the league every single year and they would have gone up every single year. Uh, and then the one year when they could actually potentially go up, and it was theirs in many ways, you would think with the resources and squad they have and going off past seasons, it was in many ways theirs to lose. And it looks like, you know, it may well blow it. So it just goes to show sport can be a funny thing, but it will be a very interesting conclusion to the season. And, yeah, it's very interesting to see what happens with the promotion. Um, as you say, if I have a Doncaster or Cornish Pirates do win the league, what's going to happen next season? Could there be a stay of execution back to the Falcons? Who knows? Or are we going to have a another deep sort of sigh of relief from the relegation next season? Or are we going to have to look at our shoulder? But it's it's really fascinating. As I say, I mean, this is the league to watch out for. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they make it so that if we assume that it's all an assumption that Cornish Pirates win the league. Quite possibly won't happen. But should that happen, it wouldn't surprise me if they say next season, no relegation, but the winner gets promoted if they meet the requirements. And we'll kind of have a bit of a Groundhog Day scenario where there's no relegation from the Premiership again. But we shall see. Anyway, if we just go around the, the rest of the scores from the, the weekend's action. A lot of games on Friday night this week. Bristol beating Wasps 31 points to 19. Sale drawing with London Irish 27 apiece. And Worcester losing to Harlequins 21 points to 29. On Saturday, only the two games, which was Leicester beating Gloucester 35 points to 23. And our losing bonus point defeat to Bath 25 points to 30. On Sunday, the final game was Northampton 31, Exeter 34, with Exeter winning in the last minute again to a penalty kick. Um, as far as the internationals go, Scotland lost 36 points to 17 at Murrayfield against France, whereas we beat Wales 
23 points to 19. Then on Sunday, Ireland in that fast against Italy won 57 points to six. And I think one of the things to note there is that Six Nations quite often goes down to points difference at the minute with the, the way it is. And Ireland have certainly bagged a load of that with that um, playing against uh, only half a team against Italy. So Six Nations, as we stand, is France in the lead on 14, Ireland on 11, England on 10, Scotland on 5 with Wales and Italy obviously on zero. When we look at the Premiership, Leicester still way out in the lead on 70 points, Saracens on 54, Harlequins have 53, Exeter now in the top four on 50, London Irish have 48, Gloucester have 47, Sale have 46, Wasps have 43, Northampton have 42, so Northampton in ninth, a point behind Wasps in eighth, and then there's quite a big gap, so we've kind of got a bit of a competition for the top eight there, but then um, Bristol have 33, we've got 26, Worcester have 25, and Bath have 20. And then if we just go to a Roundup of the regional scores. In National League One, Darlington Man Park lost to Rams, 36 points to 32. Bladen got another much-needed victory um, in National League Two North against Sheffield, and Tyndale beat Loughborough by a point. Um, that means that Bladen are climbing the way away from the relegation spots in that league, but have they left it to be too little too late? Um, in North Premier, you could kind of call it a northeast-ish derby, but still geographically quite far away. Billingham coming away, 25 points to five victors over Annick. Um, in North One East, Morpeth lost to Ilkley and Durham lost to Moortown and Constant didn't have a game this week. For some reason, in Durham Northumberland Division 2, Gisborough played Sedgefield on, on Friday and that's a big contender for score of the week. Um, I don't know if there was a festival there or, or what, but it was a Friday night game and that was 80 points to three. Um, I'd say another worthy contender for uh, score of the week is Houghton's victory over Seaton Crew, 85 points to 17. And then the final one, I think, is CM beating Win Leighton, 68 points to nil, but that seems to be quite a regular occurrence for Win Leighton these days. So upon the hill there in Gateshead, things aren't so rosy. Right, so that draws to an end. Another Folk on Falcons. Thank you for listening, everybody, and don't forget to tune in to our 50th episode special. Bye, everyone.